This event proves, this narrative proves, this truth proves God Himself can thunder the gospel from the glories of heaven. And if people are blind, they will say no. What more do you need to obey the command to repent and believe than God Almighty saying so? Rejectors will reject no matter who delivers the message, even if it's God himself. I'm Kyle Grant, and I'm the lead pastor at Grace Bible Church. You know, biblical preaching is one of the highest priorities of our ministry, and I'm so thankful that you've chosen to listen. If you have any questions about our ministry or would like to know more about Christ, feel free to connect with us at www.gracebibleelkhart.com. Thank you again for spending these moments with us, and I pray that God transforms you by His grace through the Bible. John 12 this morning. As I mentioned earlier, this is a significant passage in the book of John. This is the first real expansive admission of Christ of his death. He talks more about his death here than he has up to this point. But he talks about something else that the glories are beyond words. He talks about a gathering. I think one of the temptations for Christians when we think about gathering is to only think of one gathering as it relates to the, Jesus, the person of Jesus Christ, or maybe a few. We think about, obviously, the gathering of the congregation, and we should, the assembly of the people of God. We think about the gathering that will take place in the age that is to come, the new heaven and the new earth, when the redeemed of the Lord are together in paradise once and for all. But there's a gathering that's already taken place. There's a drawing that has already taken place. We'll talk about that gathering this morning. I was studying this week, I was reading this week on religious gatherings. And actually the two gatherings in the last few years... The gatherings that have amassed the most amount of people, and not even just the last two years, but even years before that, are religious gatherings. And for hundreds of years now, that has been the case. Two specific religious gatherings. One of them is called the Arabane Pilgrimage. It's one of the largest annual public religious gatherings, or gatherings of people in general, not just religious gatherings. It takes place in Karbala, Iraq. Devout Muslims will mourn for 40 days in recognition of a martyred Shia Muslim imam. It was estimated that last year, pre-COVID, took place in January, there were 40 million people who made this pilgrimage to Karbala, Iraq. Some coming from over hundreds of miles on foot to honor tradition. 
the same last January in India. They devout Hindus gathered in Yamuna, which is the converge, a town where the four major rivers in India converge. And they celebrate the, to us it's myth, but to them it is religious truth. They celebrate the event of a Hindu god battling the demons. And they were battling specifically over a Hindu god's urn. And anyone who is blessed with the drops of nectar that fall from the urn will know blessing for them and for their family. This gathering is called Kum Mela. And it was estimated last year that 120 million Hindus made the pilgrimage. So, together, 160 million individuals approximately making the pilgrimage to gather in honor of a prophet and false gods wanting hope, wanting blessing, hoping that this pilgrimage will be added to their goodness. 160 million people gathering in darkness. But there's a gathering that's already taken place and continues to take place. Let's read about it from our passage this morning. We're going to start in verse 27. This is Jesus speaking. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there heard and said, it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. This morning, we're going to talk together about the glorious truth from this passage, that the cross of Christ is where God gathers all peoples of the world to make them one people for worship. The cross of Christ is where God gathers all peoples of the world to make them one people for worship. Let's pray together. 
speak, O Lord. Speak words of rebuke. So that we know our sin. We see it. Speak words of reproof. So that we know what must be corrected. Speak words of exhortation, knowing that there is comfort in Christ and hope in Christ and hope for transformation and change. Speak, O Lord, so your church is built and the earth is filled with your glory. We pray these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's remind ourselves of some context. It's been, it's been two weeks since we were in the book of John. Thank you for praying for me last week as I was sick. We just finished this, well, we came off this glorious passage that we know is the triumphal entry. Then we obviously took a break for Easter. And so these are, these are days before Jesus is to die. And we actually, uh, we presume that even a little bit more time has passed at this point. Uh, so that he is just a few evenings, two or three evenings from, from his death on the cross. And then we looked at this beautiful passage, this amazing passage, the, the idea of, of Gentile inclusion and, and Christ's conquering of death, and then this, this giving of our life and discipleship that we must come to Jesus and, and we must ad- admit that to follow Jesus is to die to ourselves. And this, this interaction with the, the Greeks who desired to see Jesus. And so it's in this passage where, it's, it's from this passage, this verses 20 to 26, that really serves as the immediate context for verses 27 to 36 where we are today because Jesus begins to talk about the glory that will take place because of his death. The glory that will take place when he is in the earth, when he conquers death. And remember, he makes this idea, look with me at verse 23, and Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Well, how does this happen? So the Son of Man, the time is here, the hour is here, that glorification now takes place. Remember, he said multiple times up to this point that it's not the hour yet. The hour has not yet arrived, and so now he does. Specifically, what is this hour? Well, it's the hour of his glorification, and how is he glorified? It's the hour of his glorification through his death. Truly I say to you, verse 24, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies and remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. So obviously Jesus is predicting what will take place because of his death, the spiritual productivity and transformation that will take place because of his death. Similar to when you, when you cut a piece of grain and it goes into the earth, it does what it's supposed to do. If anyone serves me, verse 26, he must follow him, follow me, and where I am there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So the concern is still the honor of the Father. And now we have this this immediate, stark transition. And we get into the mind and the emotions and the heart of Jesus because he tells us how he feels. And so we're going to look at a few things together today. And the first thing I want to point out to you from the passage is the majesty of Christ's death. 
the majesty of Christ's death. There's great glory in His death. And He introduces this death to us by by opening up literally, emotionally, and telling us how He feels about what is to come. Let's look at verse 27. Now is my soul troubled. We've already seen this verse once before. I don't know if you remember where it is, but we've seen this verse once before in chapter 11 when Jesus arrives on the scene. This word, excuse me, we've seen the word before. When Jesus arrives on the scene in chapter 11 and he sees the mourners and those who are grieving outside the tomb of Lazarus. So when Jesus arrives, remember we talked about weeks ago, many weeks ago, when Jesus arrives on the scene and he sees both the sincere and the uh, traditional mourners, those who would come to a tomb just to mourn, and he sees this massive, emotionally gut-wrenching scene, it says his soul is troubled. I don't remember what that word, I, I, what it means when, I, when, I, when we talked about it, but it's literally the idea of, of being so emotionally affected that there's an exhalation of breath. That, there's, that you, just, you just breathe out. And remember I said, I don't know if you've done that before. Maybe when you hear of something painful or lost, we heard of a tragic loss this week related to uh, someone that my wife's family knows. And, and I, my first response, I just went, oh. It's just you, it's this immediate physical response. You're so internally and emotionally affected that you actually respond physically. I don't know if you've ever felt that on the inside. I'm sure you have. But this is what Jesus is feeling now is my soul troubled. So, so he, he, the same kind of grief, the same kind of emotional affection, the same kind of complexity that he experiences at the death of Lazarus and seeing the mourners, it's what he feels now. And why is he feeling this way? So it's grief at loss that causes this emotional response in chapter 11. What causes this emotional response In chapter 12, verse 27, the hour has come. Father, save me, or excuse me, and what shall I say? Jesus is essentially talking to himself for the benefit of others. So he's reflecting out loud so that people would hear. And what shall I say? This is so, I love it when John zeroes in on the humanity of Jesus Christ. Because, again, sometimes we accidentally, we, we, we theologically know Jesus is human. We, we theologically know Jesus is man and tempted like in every way like we are, but without sin and feels the way that we do. But sometimes we, we, we don't really think of him that way. We think of him as not really affected like we are and not really like we are. He doesn't feel things like we are. Have you ever been so hurt that you just begin to reflect out loud? Begin to talk yourself through that complexity? Now is my soul troubled and what shall I say? What do I say about this pain? What are these, what words do I have for this feeling? Father, save me from this hour. So he's reflecting out loud for the benefits of the people. What do I say, God? God, deliver me from this? What, maybe something else? Now, it's interesting. John doesn't include 
the, the narrative the other gospel writers do where Jesus is weeping grape drop, drops of blood and he says, nevertheless, if, there's, if the cup can pass from me, uh, but nevertheless, not will my will but yours. John doesn't include that narrative. So this is a, as close as we get to that kind of feeling where Jesus is so affected by the weight and the gravity of the cross that it grieves him that he understands the weight of what he's about to experience. The pain that he's about to endure. The wrath that he is about to absorb and that will absorb him. This event proves, this narrative proves, this truth proves God himself can thunder the gospel from the glories of heaven And if people are blind, they will say no. What more do you need to obey the command to repent and believe than God Almighty saying so? Rejectors will reject no matter who delivers the message, even if it's God himself. There's great majesty in Christ's death. You said that doesn't really sound like glory. That doesn't really sound like majesty. That doesn't really sound like worship. But notice what God himself says. Building off of the idea introduced to us in verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The hour of his glorification is synonymous with the hour of his death. And that God himself says it, I have glorified it through sending, through the life, through the ministry of the Son, and I will glorify it again very specifically in His death. And so there are many responses to those who by faith believe in the atoning cross work of Jesus Christ that it is sufficient, that it does save There are many responses, and one of those responses must be, God, forgive me, I'm a sinner, and save me. But the overarching response in humanity, the most profound and natural response in humanity to the cross work of Jesus Christ is to God be the glory. So there's majesty in Christ's death. How God can take something so in human terms awful, and turn it into something so majestic, so glorious, sufficient for salvation, and so hopeful, proves that only Christianity's God is sufficient and able. So there's majesty in His death. But there is also multiple effects. And these effects in his death are of great magnitude. And so let's secondly look at the magnitude of his death. There's majesty in his death. The purpose, the primary purpose of Christ's cross work is the glory of God. And we who have believed in that cross work and have been delivered by that cross work, the sufficient work of Christ, are a part of that glory. God derives glory when sinners repent and when sinners admit their need for the cross. There's great magnitude to his death. So secondly, let's look at this idea. There's three primary 
effects that are of massive magnitude in this passage. And the first one we find in verse 31, but let's start in verse 30. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not for mine. What's Jesus essentially saying? That thing, that voice you just heard, you should believe it. It didn't speak on my behalf. It spoke to you. They only think about it in human terms. It is thundered. And then this first effect of massive magnitude. Now is the judgment of this world. The finality of Christ's death would seal the judgment of disbelievers. The the finality of Christ's death seals the judgment of those who do not believe. I think sometimes we only attribute the judgment of God to God. We think God is the judge. God is Yahweh, the Father, is the righteous judge bringing judgment with him upon sinners. But this judgment that takes place when when sinners will stand before God and they will hear their verdict on the basis of their disbelief is finalized because Christ died and received that judgment. Is made official and final and secure and certain and unescapable. And Jesus endured the wrath of the cross, not escaping. Not listening to the mockers. Why don't you come down and prove who you are? Jesus absorbed the wrath, not running away. Not using divine abilities to ease his pain. And if Jesus should experience the wrath because of sin on the cross... What makes us think we are worthy to escape that wrath? Jesus experiences that judgment so that if you believe, you are justified. And he stands before the Father and says, This one's innocent. They've believed. I paid the penalty. But there will be those who will stand before the Father and in His divine, perfect, righteous judgment will receive the verdict of guilty. The finality of of His death would seal the judgment of disbelievers. Now is the judgment of this world The cross of Christ brings accountability to human belief. Now judgment is here. And judgment or freedom is wrapped up in one choice. What do you think about the cross of Christ? Secondly, the power of his death would seal Satan's defeat. The power of his death would seal Satan's defeat. The second part of verse 31, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. This is an amazing concept. There's so much irony here. I love to think about this idea. Have you ever celebrated a victory too soon? 
You ever done that? Maybe you've seen videos, like sports videos, where a player starts to show off and someone scores behind them. Maybe it's happened to you playing sports. Have you ever walked away from a project thinking this is great and the project comes tumbling down? Guess I didn't do it the way I should have. Premature feelings of victory. Can you imagine Satan's mood when Jesus is lifted up on the cross? Got him! <laughs> what promise that he would crush the serpent? Look at him now. He's dead. And in the foolishness of God's enemy, it is by the means of death. And when Jesus stops breathing, that Satan once and for all is done for. So, when Satan tempts you to despair and tells you of the guilt within, all you have to do is recognize Satan's cast out. He's lost. He thought he won. There was celebration in the pits of hell because Jesus breathed his last on the cross. And now we gather as one congregation saying, no one touches Christ. No one defeats my Savior. Not even the prince of the power of the air. He's got nothing on my Jesus. Get behind me, Satan. I can't help but feel there was a premature celebration when Jesus was lifted up and died. And now the people of God celebrate as we should, recognizing that Jesus lives. Thirdly, this massive effect of the cross, the payment of his death would suffice for the believer's deliverance. Verse 32. I love this verse so much. I love this verse so much. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Do you know why I love this verse? Because I'm one of the people. And what, is, what does Christ say in chapter 6? No one comes unless the Father draws him. That means God wanted you. He wanted you. He didn't need you. God doesn't need me. He's like, you know what? Grace Bible Church needs a pastor. I guess I need this guy. Anyone can do what God has equipped you to do. Thousands of men could do what I'm doing. He doesn't need me. Do you know why we have a relationship with God through the Son? He wanted us. And he drew us. This word, all, or this phrase, all people, should not be understood as some universalism. That one day everyone's making it up the mountain and we'll all get to Jesus eventually. That's not it. 
You could actually, in the, the original language, you could, have, you could say this, all kinds of people. All the peoples. And so this gathering that I talked about is right here at the cross of Jesus Christ. We're all bound by sin. Following Satan to certain death. Condemned because of Adam's sin and following after our own flesh. Dead. Find hope at the cross because we were drawn there. And Jesus being very specific. He says, when I am lifted up from the earth... And these people would have known exactly what that meant. How did Jews kill people? How did Jews execute people? They threw them down. And they stoned them. Jesus says, I'm going to come. I'm going to die like a Roman criminal. Lifted up. Cross set in the earth. He's being very specific. So that people understand something very specific. It is through Him being lifted up and suffering this death on the cross that not only is the Father glorified, but all the peoples are delivered. Verse 33, He said this to show what kind of death He was going to die. And so thirdly, we find in this passage the means of His death. The means of His death. I'm going to be, when we talk about crucifixion, it's, it's ugly. And I'm not going to fully go into it because we're, going to come, we're coming up in the crucifixion pack, pack, passage. But when he says, I am lifted up from the earth, people understand exactly that he is talking about death on a cross. I'm not going to go into the how, I'm going to talk about the why. We will talk about the how, and I will be very careful, parents, so you know later when we talk about crucifixion, or later on in the book, I'll be very careful. But I want us to know the, I know I want us to know the weight of Christ's suffering. The means of his death, when I'm lifted up, I'll draw all people to myself. Roman crucifixion was intentionally and strategically designed to not just make the person hurt physically, but to make them want to die. Make them want to die. It was to reduce the person down so that they felt so humiliated. It wasn't just the nails that were the worst part. It was existing on a cross, suffering before all of those who would watch and mock. They had it designed down to how the cross was carried and when the robe was put on so that when the robe was removed and the cross was placed on the back, not only was it heavy, it caused immense pain to just have a cross on your back. to make your way down the path and be kicked and spat on the entire way because again, the point was not just to make you hurt, it was to dehumanize you. 
The spikes would go through the wrists because they had found by experience that if they went through the hands, some prisoners, some criminals would actually have the strength to rip their hands off of the cross. And so they would put nails through the wrists so that they would have to pull themselves up on the bones. And literally every breath was agony. The cross would be rocked into the earth so the bones are pulled out of joint and dislocated. You say, how is there glory in this? God, from the very beginning, clothing Adam and Eve in the skins of animals who suffered and died for them has proven to us, has showed us that through great sacrifice, ultimately finding its fulfillment and its climax sacrifice in His Son, Jesus Christ, He accomplishes divine and eternal purposes. And so when Christ talks about this hour, this hour means unimaginable suffering. but this hour means unexplainable glory, irrevocable hope, unimaginable peace. And 2,000 years later, a people gathered together to study this passage and say, isn't God good? Doesn't our Savior love us? That's how glory comes from this moment. And thirdly, or fourthly, excuse me, and finally, we find the mystery of his death. The mystery of his death. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? They're like, wait a second. I thought Messiah was going to come and he was going to overthrow Rome. And to do that, you can't die. And so I think we have confusion there here on the part of those who are partially believing and those who are skeptical. I think that they're asking him this question. This doesn't make sense. Who is this son of man? Now they think he's talking about some, someone else. Or they don't think it's him anyway. And Jesus uses terminology he's already used. So Jesus said to them, the light is among you. For a little while longer, while you have the light, excuse me, walk in the light, while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. That makes sense. So we have to know the light. And in him is the light of life, because he is the light. Verse 36, while you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become the sons of light. Remember, he's already used terminology like this once before, back in John 9, when he says, we need to do the works of the Father while it's still light, while Jesus is still with them. And so then we even go, in this passage, we go back to this concept of light. Christ is raised for the glory of the Father, raised to, to die for the glory of the Father. And we who believe, we who accept that only through Christ and obey that, that, that command to repent and believe, we not only 
are delivered out of the bondage of sin so that we're no longer sons of Satan, daughters of Satan, or sons of darkness. We become sons of the light, dwelling in the light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Now that may seem like a tiny verse, but it's not. Because when Jesus comes back, he goes straight to the cross. So Jesus talks about the hour. The hour of death. The hour of glory. And that hour would arrive. The cross of Christ is where God gathers all peoples of the world to make them one people for worship. And what is our hope to become one of those people? The cross. And what is our purpose in gathering the glory of the cross? And what is our future and eternal hope, the accomplishments of the cross. And I don't know what word you think of when you think of the cross, and maybe I've given you a few more to ponder. Hopefully. Magnitude, suffering, wrath, pain, glory. I think of the word come. Come, gather. That moment where Jesus dies on the cross provides hope for all who would believe. And so, as if one, we gather at the foot of the cross and like Christian, in the pilgrim's progress, our burdens roll away only when we're at the foot of that cross and you gather saying, here was my burden, but it's gone. And I gather saying, I have this burden and it's gone. And this sister says, here was my burden and it's gone. And we gather as one people saying, our burdens are gone. Doesn't he deserve praise for the cross? Doesn't God deserve Glory for this divine plan? I don't know how you look at your life. I don't know how you look at your circumstances. I don't know how you look at your sin. I don't know how you look at your children. I don't know how you look at your spouse. But I hope the cross is always in view. Because we have no better motivation for glory than the sufferings of Christ that fulfill the plan of God.